Well, it was in January of this year that we began our study in Matthew's Gospel, and a few months later we arrived at the Sermon on the Mount and have been studying these Beatitudes for some time now. It is appropriate for a little bit of review, given the break over the summer. You'll remember Matthew is particularly concerned in his Gospel to present Jesus as the King the long-awaited-for Messiah. Every gospel author has his own emphasis, they would all agree, concerning the person of Christ and who he was, but they present him and his life with a different emphasis, and Matthew's emphasis is on the kingship of Christ. And coupled with that, we find in Matthew's gospel a particular emphasis on Jesus' teaching. There are five sustained teaching blocks given to us throughout Matthew's Gospel, the first of which is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The opening section of the sermon are the so-called Beatitudes, and I recommended that you think of them as something like a table of contents for the rest of the sermon. Now, that isn't to say that each beatitude has a corresponding section in the sermon, but rather, here, Jesus introduces some key ideas and themes that he'll pick up on later and will keep re-emerging throughout the sermon. The beatitudes should not be thought of as criteria that we are to attain standards that we must reach in order to be counted as Jesus' disciples. That's not how the Beatitudes function. Rather, they are characteristics. There's a context to this sermon, and we must be mindful of it. In chapter 4, Jesus preached the necessity of repentance and faith in him. He calls the fishermen to leave everything and follow him. And it's in that context, as he speaks to his disciples first and foremost, that he shows in following Jesus, you will start to exhibit certain characteristics. As you have put your trust in Christ for salvation, certain things start to happen. Not least, you show yourself to be a disciple. These beatitudes become true of you. With that being said, it's not wrong for me to exhort you towards these behaviors. Certainly, with our new covenant hearts, we start to display these characteristics, but none of us are perfect. None of us will be perfect this side of glory, and so it's appropriate that I exhort you towards them and that we are mindful of the way in which Jesus would expect us to behave as followers of him. That then brings us to the very last beatitude. It is properly considered as one thought. Certainly, Jesus says blessed twice here, verse 10 and verse 11. But in verse 11, as we see, he is expanding upon the thought given in verse 10. It's something of a recapitulation, and we'll think more later on this morning about why he reiterates and repeats this last beatitude. But the thought is singular, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, you may remember me saying 
the Beatitudes gives a manual for discipleship, a way of life that I phrased, packaged as kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. All of the Beatitudes, either taken individually or holistically, show us a way of living that is undoubtedly kingdom-oriented. As we take to heart these words, our minds will be cast forward to the coming kingdom. They are Christ-centered if we properly wrestle with what Jesus says in these Beatitudes we will inevitably land back at the need to follow Christ through faith. And they're a way of flourishing. Jesus does not intend to create a burden for your back in giving these instructions. He wants for his disciples to flourish in this life now. That first word, blessed, carries with it the notion of being happy, joy-filled, flourishing in this life. So with that reminder, this manual for discipleship, kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, we see the difficulty in the last beatitude that Jesus preaches, blessed are those who are persecuted. I think maybe this is the hardest of the beatitudes to appropriate. It's not all that difficult to understand. There aren't any particularly difficult interpretive issues around this beatitude, but it is difficult to appropriate to our lives. How are we to understand that there is a blessing in persecution? How could this possibly fit with Jesus' desire that his disciples flourish? Our task today is to understand exactly what Jesus means when he says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and by God's grace to be found faithful to living in accordance with this characteristic. Now to get into the beatitude I want to ask a series of questions as we have done with all the others. What nature of righteousness is Jesus speaking of? What kind of righteousness? What kind of persecution? What kind of blessing? And finally, what kind of response? There'll be our headings this morning. What kind of righteousness? What kind of persecution? What kind of blessing and what response? Beginning with the nature of righteousness to which Jesus is referring, the answer is it is a strange kind of righteousness. It is strange because since you were a child, the way you have learnt about righteousness is that doing good typically brings reward. That's a, a standard that the world would affirm when you do what is right, you're rewarded for it. It's something that is known to all of us. We teach our children in that way, and yet here... Jesus teaches completely the opposite. Do what is right, what is good, and you'll be persecuted. Not an immediate reward in this life, but rather persecution. It's a strange kind of righteousness. It would have taken the disciples aback when they heard Jesus conclude the Beatitudes in this way. It's not 
strange only to our ears, it would have been to theirs also, the kind of righteousness that Jesus is speaking of here is the kind that is not practiced by most people. The kind of righteousness that Jesus speaks of here is the kind that is not practiced by most people. The reason I say that, we understand from reading the Gospels, there is a kind of righteousness that dishonors God. There's a kind of righteousness that does not honor the Father. It's the kind of righteousness that Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry trying to undermine and expose. I'm speaking about the righteousness practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. That was abhorrent to Jesus. He tried to show it for the facade that it was. Their righteous behavior that was accepted by all around them and affirmed dishonored God. The kind of righteousness that Jesus speaks of here is a different kind of righteousness. It is one that has as its foundation faithfulness to Christ. Now, How is it that I say that? Here we can compare what Jesus says in verse 10 and 11. You'll see that Jesus repeats the thought in verse 11 and expands upon it. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says again in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. He's expanding the thought. And then he says at the end of verse 11, on my account. So we can compare those two verses and allow one to form a commentary on the other. What kind of righteousness brings persecution? It is the kind, verse 11, that is centered upon faithfulness to Jesus Christ. You see how in verse 11, he substitutes for righteousness sake with the words on my account. So he ties the two concepts together. The righteousness that brings persecution that is not rewarded or affirmed by the world is a righteousness that begins with, is founded upon fidelity to the Lord Jesus. It's a righteousness that emanates from affections for him. It is a righteousness that the Pharisees did not practice. In this sense, we've already covered this point earlier in chapter 3 when John the Baptist taught about repentance. If you think back to John the Baptist's opening words in his ministry, he accused the authorities for having a false kind of repentance. They were repenting but their repentance was not grounded upon an anticipation of the Messiah. It was fueled by some other motive, not least the fear of God's judgment and not a reception of His Son. Well, repentance and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. It's the same point that Jesus makes here. The righteousness that His disciples exhibit is grounded upon faithfulness to Him. 
a love for him, affections for him, and not, first and foremost, something else. Now, as soon as I say that, I understand there are certain questions that emerge. How do you know the difference? When you look at a person's life and you see them conducting themselves in a way that is accepted, their way of living is not abhorrent, but would be deemed to some degree as upright. How do you know if it's the righteousness that Jesus commends here, grounded upon faithfulness to Him, or some other kind of false righteousness that on the last day will actually be condemned? The answer is we don't know. We don't know from looking at somebody's life what their foundation is, at least not with utter certainty, and that's okay. Jesus himself taught that the wheats and the tares will grow up together in the same field, and it's not for us to separate them. He said on the last day he will come and separate the wheat from the tares. It's not our responsibility to separate the two. But, as far as you are concerned, with respect to your personal behavior, the Bible does call us to self-examination. It's appropriate for us to examine our own hearts and to question whether our righteousness is fueled by a love for Christ or something else. Whether it be the desire for the praise of men. Whether it be a desire to not incur some form of persecution. The affirmation of others. There can be many, many things that might guide and fuel your behavior. And it's right that you ask the question of what kind of righteousness do I show? Is Christ the foundation of my right behavior. Now, I would caution you to be careful. It is entirely possible for a Christian to live their life demonstrating a righteousness that is not grounded upon Christ. It's entirely possible for a Christian, one who has put their faith in Christ for the salvation of their soul, to live large portions of their life demonstrating a pharisaical type of righteousness. It can be very easy for a Christian to fall into a way of right living that mirrors that of the Pharisees and the authorities and does not have as its foundation affections for the Lord Jesus. Christians will often spend a long period without returning to their Savior in the Word and in prayer through fellowship, neglecting Him, and as they do so, their righteousness changes in its motivation. So I'd encourage you this morning to ensure that your righteousness comes from a love for Christ and not from some other desire. How do you make sure that that is your kind of righteousness? Very simply, be a student of Christ. Examine His life. 
take in his glory. Allow your heart to find as its resting place the splendor of the sun. And respond in prayer. Tell the Father how much you love his Son. Study the Lord Jesus and take him in regularly. Be a student of your Savior and tell your Father in heaven how much you love him. Father, I love the glory of Jesus Christ. And pray that your affections would increase. Father, I love the glory of your Son. Would you increase my love for him? I am so enamored by the Lord Jesus. I trust him with my life. I depend upon him. Would you increase my dependence on him? And when this is a pattern that you tread out, a path that you follow regularly. The righteousness that you then practice as you seek to put your feet one after another in accordance with the commands of Scripture found both in the Gospels, in the New Testament epistles, as you seek to honor the Lord with your life, your righteousness will be the kind of which Jesus speaks of here. You will start to see, God will open your eyes to false righteousness. Your heart would be more attuned to when your righteousness is guided by another motive. You can repent and seek to love Christ more and allow Him to guide your steps. And as you do so, there will be consequences. You see, my prayer is that this church would exude the kind of righteousness that Jesus speaks of here. I pray that God would guard us from a false kind of righteousness, that he would not permit us as a congregation to practice in an ongoing manner the kind of righteousness that Jesus condemned, but that God would guide our hearts collectively, individually, in the kind of righteousness of which Jesus speaks knowing that in so much as God answers that prayer, there will be consequences. Not least, persecution comes. This is now moving on to our second point. Jesus effectively promises that those who live out their lives exhibiting righteousness that is grounded upon faithfulness to Him will be persecuted. He says in verse 11, when, not if, when others revile you. Interestingly, there is also a tense change to the main verb in verse 10. Different from all the other Beatitudes, There is a tense change to the verb that suggests several things. First of all, potentially, the tense that Jesus uses here potentially indicates that the disciples had already begun to feel this persecution. 
perhaps already in their short time following Jesus, before he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, they begin to feel the consequences for showing themselves as faithful followers of him. And then also the tense change potentially is there so as to indicate the ongoing nature of the persecution. Jesus speaks in such a way so as to guarantee persecution, possibly hinting at its ongoing nature. It will keep coming. Persecution is effectively promised by Jesus to all those who live a right standard based upon faithfulness to Him. Now consider just how strange that is. There are two kinds of righteousness that we can observe. There is the righteousness that the world would practice. Living to some degree in an upright manner in ways that society has deemed appropriate, not grounded upon Christ. And then there is another kind of righteousness that is grounded upon faith in Christ, and we can't always tell the difference. And yet, it is the second kind of righteousness that attracts persecution. There is nothing to suggest that the first kind practiced by unbelievers will attract any kind of persecution. And yet Jesus promises that the second kind absolutely will. So what's the difference? Why should one form of persecution bring about so much hatred in people's hearts? I believe the answer is because the first kind that practiced by the world is malleable. The righteousness that is practiced by those in society that don't know Christ is malleable. It will change. It will adapt based on the circumstances. A politician will change his standards based upon what his constituency desire. What will get him the votes, he'll change the standards. A celebrity will change their standard of living in order to keep receiving the affirmation and the praise of others. By contrast, the righteousness practiced by Jesus' disciples is not malleable. It is not permitted to change because the Word of God does not change. Our righteousness is derived from Scripture which does not change, which in turn is founded upon the character of God. God does not change and therefore our righteousness does not change. And therefore, there will be times when it attracts hatred and persecution of others. Now, that is helpful to consider as a means of understanding the strange situation in which we find ourselves in the West, specifically the church in America has not known real persecution for a long time. Certainly not in the way that the church has throughout its history, and certainly not in the way that many Christians do this day 
around the world. The Bible gives many verses about the certainty of persecution, not just here in Matthew 5, but all throughout the New Testament, it is to be anticipated by God's people. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how do we reconcile that promise with our experience? And I would say in God's kindness, He has allowed for a very long time now the righteousness practiced by Christians to be very much parallel with the righteous standards accepted by society. It's not the same all the world over, but certainly in the West, the standards that have been accepted by society have largely paralleled what a biblical righteousness looks like such that our behavior has not brought about persecution. You can praise God for that. It really is testimony to the impact of the first century church. The first century Christians turned the world upside down. They introduced a new way of living that was compelling to so many and thereafter influenced the way in which righteousness was thought of in the West. Note, the time has come when the two Levels of righteousness are no longer running as parallel. Undoubtedly, the two standards of righteousness over the last few decades have started to diverge. Ours remains the same, founded upon the Word of God, but society has steadily begun to embrace new norms, new standards. A different understanding of what is right and proper and acceptable behavior so that sins which were previously shunned are now celebrated and championed. And I don't think it's that long before the church in the West begins to feel the persecution that so many other Christians have experienced for so much of church history. What is the nature of that persecution? Again, a comparison of verse 10 with 11 helps us see it. In verse 10, the principle, blessed are those who are persecuted. In verse 11, Jesus unpacks that persecution. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. That word revile carries with it the notion of mocking perhaps placing a slight emphasis on verbal assaults. Blessed are you when they persecute you. Persecution, the word there, has as its root the notion of pursuing, harassing, perhaps with an accent on physical abuse. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So there, the persecution is of a verbal nature, but notice it goes beyond an individual interaction to the crowd. Now they seek to sully your name, to bring you down before others. And so, the picture of persecution that Jesus gives is undoubtedly all-encompassing. Verbal, 
physical, interpersonal, and before others. You can expect it all, says Jesus. Don't expect to get off lightly, but anticipate every kind of persecution. And so as I pray that our church would exude the righteousness that Jesus speaks of here, we would show ourselves to be true disciples, living holy lives grounded upon faith in Him. I do so knowing the consequences. And the question arises, how, if and when the Lord ordains persecution, whether in this generation or the next, how do we stand? How do we stand in such a manner that we hold fast to our testimony of faith in Christ? We don't deny our allegiance to Him when the world is no longer so favorable towards the church? The answer, at least in part, is you have to know what is the reward. In order to stand fast in the day of testing, you have to know what is the reward. And so, moving on to our third point, what blessing does Jesus speak of here? You'll remember in all of the Beatitudes, there is a twofold blessing inherent to Jesus' words. There is a twofold blessing in every beatitude, the first being an immediate one that comes just by way of that word blessed. It means flourishing, happy will be. He's speaking right now. This is the life that God intends for you to live. And when you live the way God intends, you know his blessing. Jesus is not speaking about a transaction. He's not saying if you do this, God rewards you in this tangible manner. But more broadly, you'll flourish. And then there is the future-oriented blessing found at the end of every beatitude. And so every single one carries with it a twofold blessing. So what is the immediate blessing that comes by virtue of being persecuted for your holy living. Why is it that Jesus can say you are flourishing when this happens to you? There's much that we could say. Perhaps the most important point that the Bible makes many times over, the blessing that comes from persecution is that it functions as a confirmatory sign that you belong to God. The reason that the Bible labels persecution not as a failure in God's plan, quite the opposite, as a blessing, is because the persecution is intended to function as a confirming sign that you belong to God. We see this all throughout the New Testament when Peter writes his first epistle. He says, do not be surprised when you are persecuted. As if this is untoward. Something's gone wrong. He says, rather rejoice because the Spirit of God is on you. It is intended to function for our benefit 
as an indication that we belong to God. In fact, Jesus even hints at that when he gives his reason for rejoicing in verse 12. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll think about the imperative rejoice in just a minute, but the reason he's able to say rejoice in the face of persecution is because you are simply falling into a long line of godly men and women who experience exactly the same as you. You read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, and he simply charts a course of redemptive history showing those who persecuted Jesus, you are doing exactly the same as you've done to everyone that came before him. God sent prophets, you persecuted them. That is the norm, the normative experience for God's people throughout redemptive history. And so when persecution comes, the last thought you should have is that something's gone wrong. The last thought that you should think is this must be out with God's plan. This cannot be what he has designed for me. Quite the opposite. God ordains persecution according to his wisdom, in part as a grace to us. It is a grace to us confirming that we belong to him. This is exactly what Jesus taught in John chapter 15 when he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He's simply drawing a a connecting line between his experience and our experience. I think about The story I read just recently of a young convert in Latvia received the gospel, embraced it as his own, put his faith in Christ, knew the forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. It was unusual for a conversion to happen and for him to be so bold about it afterwards and his father in particular took issue with his son's newfound faith. Every day, the young man would go out. He was a farm worker. He'd be working in the fields. When he came home, his dad was waiting for him to ask him one question, and that is whether he had renounced his faith in Christ. And every day, the boy knew that it was coming, and he would say with confidence, I have not. And then the father would beat him until he was bleeding And later on, he was asked, how were you able to withstand the pressure and the beatings of your father? And he said, as it was going on, I would just pray to God and thank him that he considered me worthy of the honor of suffering. It was functioning in his heart as a confirmatory sign that he was a child of God. And so it should be for us, and therein is the immediate blessing of persecution. The future-oriented blessing comes at the end of verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a kingdom that is coming, and it belongs to those who have demonstrated their allegiance to Christ through righteousness 
In so doing, they have suffered persecution. And Jesus holds it out and commends that his disciples would look at it. Look at the coming kingdom. You'll be part of it. And then in verse 12, your reward in it will be great. And we see it in passages like we read this morning, Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 61 and so many other texts where God in his kindness shows us in high definition what the nature of the kingdom is because it is intended to function for us as a motivation to keep going when we suffer persecution. It is intended that the Christian regularly sets their mind on the coming kingdom so as to stand fast during the day of testing. One thing that you'll notice about those passages, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 61, is the abundant righteousness that is practiced by all who are there. On new levels, the people of God will come face to face with their king. We will be finally perfected. And so on new levels, we'll practice the righteousness that God desires. And it is coupled with abundant peace. Read those kingdom passages, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 51. There is peace abounding coupled with righteousness demonstrated. In that sense, the kingdom is an entirely unique time in redemptive history. We have not seen anything like it before because all throughout redemptive history, God's people have known persecution and affliction because of their allegiance to God. When the kingdom comes, they will behave in a manner that is consistent with their faith and they will know no persecution. Only peace, abounding peace. And that's why God can speak through the prophet Isaiah and issue comforting promises such as those that we read this morning in chapter 51. Do not fear. Don't Fear, says God, to his people. You don't need to fear the reviles of man, the reproaches of those that would do harm to you. You don't need to fear because a kingdom is coming and you will be there and you will know peace upon peace when that day arrives. Now, if you are here this morning and you have never Put your faith in Christ for salvation. I would encourage you to set your mind on those glorious visions of the kingdom. Join with God's people in setting your mind on the kingdom. Allow your heart to go where it doesn't like to go. Beyond the end of this earthly life. Go beyond there. And consider the reality of the kingdom and know that only those who have put their faith in Christ will be present on that day. If you have never put your trust in Christ, you have no place in that kingdom. You won't get to enjoy the peace 
that God's word promises. You don't get to be comforted this morning by his promise to establish his righteous ones. And allow that vision as your heart goes there to prompt you to repentance. Allow that vision to stir your heart in a different way from the manner of life that you currently live. Turn away from all that dishonors God and embrace Christ as a worthy, sufficient Savior, knowing that He will transform your heart so that you begin to exhibit this kind of righteousness. It may bring persecution, but you do not need to fear because there is a kingdom coming that all those who have put their faith in Christ will be part of, and your reward in that kingdom is great. Now the last question to consider then is what is our response? In a sense, it's the only time we've asked this of any of the Beatitudes because none of them thus far, at least not in the text, have demanded a response, and yet this Beatitude is unique. You'll notice in verse 12, for the first time within all of the Beatitudes, Jesus now gives an imperative. This is the first and only command in the Beatitudes, specifically rejoice. And notice just how emphatic Jesus is about our obedience to this command. First of all, he issues this Beatitude twice. They're not different in their thought, but rather it's a reiteration in verse 11 because he really wants to press this one in particular into the hearts of his disciples. Then notice the change in person. All of the Beatitudes are spoken with reference to the third person. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And then when we get to verse 11, there's a change as he shifts to the second person. Blessed are you. You can imagine as Jesus preaches this sermon up on the mountain, the disciples come around him and he speaks first and foremost to them. But there are indications that as he keeps preaching, the crowds are now gathering. By the end of the sermon, the crowd listening in looks very different to the beginning. Perhaps even within the Beatitudes, the crowd is growing. And so Jesus, at the very last, drops his gaze from the crowd And he just looks right in front of him to his disciples. And he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Because he wants them to remember these words. And then he issues the only command he gives. Contrary to every inclination of our human hearts, he says, when it happens, I want you to rejoice. He doesn't say, 
merely stand. He doesn't merely say with stand whatever they bring upon you. He says, I want you in that day to be glad. Because that is a mark of my disciples. The disciples rejoice. How can we rejoice in the face of persecution? Because we know how precious is the blessing. We know how special is the reward. And thus as we keep in view the reward in heaven and the blessing that comes now, by God's grace... We can be those who under times of affliction can be glad. And that brings to a close the Beatitudes, this table of contents for what it looks like to follow Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray now to close. Our Father, we give you thanks for these words from our Lord Jesus. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, teach us about this righteousness. We see how it is grounded in a love for Christ, faith in him. May this church abound in Christ-centered righteousness. Teach us about this righteousness that it will bring the hatred of the world, will bring persecution, they will revile in response. Father, teach our hearts to expect this. And teach us of the blessing. Help us to understand this is not a failure in your plan. But all throughout redemptive history, you have used the persecution of your people as a grace in their lives to confirm that they belong to you. May it be so also with us. Father, direct our hearts to the coming kingdom. May we grasp with all sincerity, with all faith, the realities that are yet to come. May we eagerly anticipate that glorious day when Christ establishes his kingdom on this earth, when righteousness will abound and there will be a complete absence of violence against your people. And with all of that, we pray that we would be those who rejoice. As you, in your 
sovereign plan according to your wisdom. Bring persecution because of our holiness. May we rejoice and be glad. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.